0: start also by saying, uh, this is at the bottom of your handout, but if you enjoy our seminar or you want to keep thinking about this, I have three books that I actually want to recommend to you. If you want to think about ethics more, uh, a book called the doctrine of the Christian life by John frame is very, very good on this. It's not at the book uh, table this week, but it is on Amazon and things. Hi, welcome. Welcome. Uh, come, come, come sit down. Um, it is on the book table uh, other times, but yeah, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, it might look intimidating. I will say it looks kind of like a textbook, but I promise that it's actually written very accessibly. The next one is not written as a textbook, but, and it's not as accessible. I'll just tell you this if you're like not gearing up to do some uh, heavy thinking, but it is on the book table. Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman is... A really, really, really good unpacking of where the West has gone ethically over the past 300 years, and is really fascinating about that. I, I would recommend that one. And then finally, there's a book by, called Dominion by Tom Holland—not that Tom Holland, interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, not the Spider-Man Tom Holland. Although a book by him would would be in, uh, incredible uh, about this subject. Uh, this is. Hey, welcome. Welcome. Come on in. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, Dominion by Tom Holland. It's a basically a history biography of the past 2,000 years in the West and how we have left Christianity behind, and yet our morality is still very much rooted in Christian thought. And so uh, if you're interested at all about ethics – uh, these are three books that were pretty foundational to what we're talking about today. So that's, that, those are the books. Those are all the disclaimers. If you want to read more by people who are smarter than me and know more than me, those are the books to go read. Let's talk about ethics for a moment. Okay, so you wandered in here. Uh, I said that, that we were talking about ethics, and none of you got up to leave, so that means that you're, you think you want to be here. Let's start by talking about what ethics is. Right, so what is ethics? What do I mean by that? What are we talking about? Uh, you might have just stumbled in here because this is, you know, uh, the one room you saw on your way to uh, the kitchen. you were like, I'll just go to that one. So just so you know that uh, what ethics is, ethics fundamentally, the study of ethics, it aims to answer one question. Here's what we're, we're talking about today. We're going to answer one question. And it's this. How ought we to live? Right? How ought we to live? What does it mean uh, to, to study ethics, to know ethics? It's how ought we to live? What I mean by that is it, to differentiate from other ideas about ethics. So sometimes ethics can be boiled down to fun scenarios to ponder and think about, right? But they, they don't tell you about how to live, right? So ethics becomes, you know... Uh, Have you all heard of the trolley problem? you heard of the trolley problem? So, like, everyone wants to talk about ethics in terms of, like, yeah, if uh, you have a, a cable car or a rail car full of people and if you uh, divert the rail car, it will run over one person. But if you don't divert the way you you like have your hand on a lever and you can divert the rail car and it'll run over one person if you divert it, or it'll go, this hundred person rail car will go off a cliff if you don't do anything. And so do you pull the lever and like kill the one person or do you save the hundred? It's like, guys, if you ever come into a situation where you have to make that kind of decision, you will have made hundred other decisions before that decision that were probably not so great. Uh, and so I got to tell you, uh, ethics, ethics is concerned about the things that you did about a hundred decisions ago that led you to that point. Um, because what we're talking about is your real life, right? You make, you make decisions about everything all the time today. Like, like today, you decided to come to this seminar. Uh, you decided to come to this conference uh, that took, you know, gas money. You could have spent that on, say, you know, get, providing water to some village in Africa. There are all these decisions, right, or, or Asia or, or you know, even here in the States, Flint needs water. Um, you could have done so many things with that money that would have been possibly better, right? You could have done things that could have been better with your money. And uh, And so why did you come here? You have to make ethical decisions about all these things all the time. And, uh, like, what, what could it have been like if you had done the right things, right? Um, and you can play this game in your mind, and I think it's important that we talk about, like, what it means to really, to, like, live the lives that we are living, right? Not, uh, not hypothetically, you know, some trolley problem, but about how we ought to live. That is what we're talking about. Uh, you, on your college campuses, whether you're, you know, RUFI and a PhD, Uh, Candidate, or you're in undergrad, you're a freshman, either of those people, when you wake up every day, all the choices that you make, what you eat, the car you drive, uh, what you spend your time watching, like all of these things are ethical decisions. They are how you are supposed to live. Now, the importance of this issue for me came home whenever I was in seminary. I had a friend named Trey, and I have asked permission to borrow this story. Uh, He comes out looking great in it, anyways. But we were discussing our dream jobs after we, got, after we graduated. I don't know if you guys know this, but all your campus ministers have gone to a thing called seminary. They got graduate degrees, and then they uh, went off, and they had to take a test, this like, really arduous test uh, for ordination to be able to do their jobs. And we were talking about, like, well, in those exams, you know, different presbyteries. You can come in. You can come in. Uh, you're good. Uh, During those exams, these things called presbyteries, these uh, men from other churches in your area can ask you anything. And then they can tell you they can actually say, no, you cannot have the job, even though like RUF wants you to do this. And even though everybody wants you to do this or or they want you to plan church like these men can actually decide your fate. And in some places uh, they might have particular areas of theological concern that maybe I don't share. Right. Maybe they think. Uh, you know, a certain amount of days is how old the creation is, right? Like they, may, they might be very staunch, like it should be six calendar days. That's the way creation works. Or, you know, some people think it might be longer than that, right? Or shorter than that, it, that, it's, that the creation count isn't exactly literal in that way. Uh, this is not a seminar about that, but we can talk about that if you want. Uh, I, I have a particular view of creation that may not jive in every presbytery, that not everybody would want to hire me. And my friend asked me, like, what my dream job was. And I said, well, you know, like, I really, I think I would just want to be Brian Habig, which is this pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. And, and I said, but the problem is, I could never get hired there. I don't have the right view of creation. And he, and I said, but, you know, maybe I still could. And he goes, what do you mean by that? And I said, uh, you know, I think, you know, I, I think I could still get that job. And he goes, he looks at me, and he gets kind of somber for a second. And he goes are you, I'm sorry, are you insinuating that you would lie to these people if it, like, if it came down to, like, you getting this job? And I had to think about it for a second. I said, well, you know, like, hmm, uh, I would be planting a church. I'd probably do a lot of good for a lot of people. People would would come to faith. And, uh, and, like, how much more important is it for there to be churches and for there to be, you know, people exposed to the gospel, then some guys understanding of, you know, whether the earth is 6,000 years old or 6 million years old or 6 billion years old. Like, why does it, what does it matter? And I honestly, I was thinking through it and I was like, I don't think it does, you know, like I think it's worth it. It one little lie for a lot of good. Yeah. Yeah. I would lie. And he looked at me and got, I mean, you would have thought that I had like taken out his dog and just shot it right in front of him, and he he looks at me and he goes, "Nick, if you did that, then you would be a liar. Do you understand? If you lie, you are a liar." And I was like, "No, what?" Uh, and he goes on to he goes on to tell me that you know he's like, "Don't you think that like God doesn't want you to lie?" I was like, "I mean, I guess, but you know." Uh, If I could do more good for some people, what's what's the problem? You know, I wasn't prepared for that reaction. I know God has rules, and I know, you know, lying is kind of a biggie, doesn't really want you to do that. But surely, surely He would make an exception for this, right? Surely uh, He would make an exception for this. I mean, isn't that what Jesus does? Right when the Pharisees are being all legalistic and they're all, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this on the Sabbath, you know, don't walk, don't don't eat the grain on the Sabbath. Like he was just dunking on Pharisees for being legalistic, right? What was my friends being legalistic about this lying thing? You know, I'm just trying to love people. I'm trying to do more good. So why is he getting hung up on this lying? The laws don't matter anymore. Didn't he get the memo? Right. All that matters is that you try to love people as long as you're trying to do the most good for the most people and limit limit suffering to the least amount of people, right? That's all that matters. That's what the Christian life is about, or so I thought. And that's where my sanctification journey began in terms of ethics, in terms of asking myself the question, "How ought I to live?" It, it started with my friend basically screaming at me, like, "You're going to be a liar! Don't be a liar!" Um, what was I missing? What did my friend understand in that conversation that I didn't? What was he seeing about the world that I didn't see about being honest and being a person of integrity? Well, the truth was I was a Christian and I loved Jesus, but I had inherited our culture's worldview. And what I mean by our culture, I'm talking about the Western world's worldview. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm going to open it up. I know we have some RUFI folks uh, in here at this point now. Um, If you know, as I talk about this today, we're going to be focused a little bit on the West, but I I welcome your insights into how this plays out uh, worldwide. Uh, I'll be honest; I am not prepared to talk about those things, but I would love feedback on that. So, uh, here's here's my contention: is that yeah, we have all grown up in a cultural uh, stream that has put us in a position where this is how we think about the world that we inherit a cultural worldview and that you have actually, if you have been, if you have been born and grown up in the, in the West over the past, if you've been born and grown up in the West in the past 200 years, you have inherited the same cultural worldview. And it doesn't matter if you're in the church or out of it. uh, All of us have kind of collectively inherited this worldview. And here's what I mean for the past 200 years in my blurb for this seminar I claim that you and I, tragically, live in a moment of severe ethical poverty, that we are impoverished eth- ethically, that we cannot think very well about how we ought to live. Now, it's not pa- possible for us to rehash uh, 2,000 years of Western civilization in a couple of hours. Uh, I recommend Rise and Triumph for the Modern Self, Dominion for that. But here's, here's what I mean in brief. All right, let's uh, imagine yourself. We're in the 18th century, 1700s, in the 18th century, and you're in France, and a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau writes this book called The Confessions. And in it, he writes a a story about how – and this is actually a true autobiographical account of uh, this time where he's working for a wealthy family in France – And he sees this ribbon, this like hair tie. It's a red ribbon that his employer owns, the daughter of his employer owns. And he covets it. He thinks, man, that's a beautiful ribbon. I would love to give it to my friend. Uh, I have a friend in mind that I'd like to give that to. And so you know what he does? He steals it. He just steals the ribbon. He rationalizes it in in his head. He says a couple things. One, I don't get paid enough. At this job. Like, the truth is, like, this is actually just part, partly fair compensation. Two, she won't really miss it. And three, I'm gonna give it to a friend, so it's not even for me. I'm actually trying to do a good thing. And the problem, though, is before he can give it away, they find out about this stolen ribbon. And they come to him and they, they actually uh, ask him, like, did you steal this ribbon? He says, no, he lies. And he tells them, uh, the housekeeper stole it this other woman who was cleaning their house and she ends up getting fired over it. Come on in, come on in. She ends up getting fired over it and he starts to reflect on this experience that he lied and got this other person fired. And he's like, man, what kind of person am I that I would get this person fired by lying about stealing the ribbon? And he he concludes, he starts thinking about it. He concludes this. He was right. Right to have taken the ribbon. That's what he concludes. I was right to have taken the ribbon because one, like he said, I was underpaid. And two, I was gonna give it to a friend. It was actually not even for me. It's not selfish. It's not selfishly motivated. And he concludes, I would have told the truth. I actually would have told the truth about this whole thing if society hadn't decided that lying was bad or if society hasn't decided that stealing was bad. The problem is not me, right? I have good intentions for the ribbon. And in fact, like I think I deserve to have it. The problem is that society tells me that I can't just take it. Right. The problem is out there, and now that it says that I can't just take it, uh, I have to lie about it. And, and society has actually forced me to be false to myself. That if there were no repercussions from society, if we hadn't arbitrarily, he says, arbitrarily decided that stealing was wrong, I actually could have gotten away. I would have been happy to tell them exactly that I took it and that I did it for good reason. And he could have, and he could have expressed himself and people would have understood. But he can't do that because there are rules that are forcing him to not be true to himself. So he concludes: man is born naturally good, that we have all these good impulses, and there are all these external rules that are that are inhibiting us from from being free from doing what we really want to do and that we would like to do good things, right? It's throwing off these outside it's in throwing off these outside rules and laws and norms that I can become my true self, that I can be free to be me. And what develops out of this, right? This little moment, uh, in, a, in an autobiography called The Confessions is actually a whole movement of the Enlightenment. If you've heard of the Enlightenment, it happens in the 18th century alongside Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And it basically decides that the, the greatest good, the insatiable desire that we all have is to express ourselves. Like what is inside of us is the greatest good, Right. Now, here's the here's the issue that Rousseau faced and several other people faced is, how do we balance this reality, right? He wants to be able to take the ribbon and, but he understands that like you can't, you know, you can't just take someone's life or you couldn't just do something to someone else that they don't consent to, that there is, there, is some, there has to be some limit, right? If I don't, if I just wanna express myself by, you know, sticking a, uh, you know, a spike through your head. Like that's not, you can't do that because that doesn't let the other person express themselves, right? And so what they come up with is what I would argue is the greatest ethical revolution since the Jesus movement swept through Rome in the early uh, part of the millennium, right? That what he decides is that uh, consequentialism, Really, just consequentialism has to be enshrined as the sole ethical good in our world. Now, uh, what does that mean? It's the sole ethical grid by which our lives are going to be measured. When we ask the question of ethics, how ought we to live, really the only question we're asking is, at this point in the West, 200 years downstream of Rousseau, is what... uh, what is the greatest amount of good for the minimal amount of pain, right? That's consequentialism. So I'm going to say this a couple of times. Consequentialism, right? Consequentialism, a big word. Uh, if you notice inside that word is the word consequence, right? Thinking about the consequences of an action. Consequentialism becomes enshrined as the sole ethical grid by which lives are to be measured. And it is... Governed by this question, like what will maximize pleasure and minimize pain? That's consequentialism. We want to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And it's most basic. The consequentialist creed might be: if it feels good, it is good. Right? If it feels good, it is good. That's that's the only that's the only norm. Uh, as long as it doesn't harm somewhere else, someone else. Right. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh, and, and therefore, right, you can you can see where this is going like consent then. Right. Becomes the only barrier to any moral good. Right. If you can do anything you want, as long as it feels good then as long as other people also agree that it feels good, then it is good. Right. The, the limit is only someone else's consent. Now. Here's the issue with that. Uh, Some of you in the room, you might come from cultures or backgrounds, uh, maybe even come from the church or you grew up Christian and you would say like, well, I wouldn't put it that way. I know I know enough to know that you can't just do whatever you want I get it, Nick. I went to RUF a couple times. I know that you're going to say that that's bad. Well, here's here's the slippery way that we sneak it into the church. And we've been doing this for a long time. And this is what I was telling you earlier. This is what I did. What we do is we baptize that same idea with Christian virtues, right? Christian values. So our mantra, we don't say whatever feels good is good. We say something uh, different. We say something like this. If it gives us the best outcome as the Bible defines it, then it is good, right? If it makes me feel good as the Bible says I should feel good, then it is good, right? If it does good for other people, whatever the means, the truth is that it is good. That's what it's not about the laws anymore. Uh, We're not we're past the law. We have freedom from the law. Right. And so there are no moral norms anymore. There's no ethical rights and wrongs. There's just trying to do what the Bible has envisioned as being good. We're just going to try to do that. Uh, and, you know, and if it takes you know, us breaking a few rules, or bending a few things, so be it. Right? We still think of things in terms of their consequences. We still think, we look at the consequences of an action and we think, is that how the Bible would define a good outcome? And then we make decisions based on that. It's not that different from the basic, uh, basic creed that we discussed earlier. We simply define what feels good and harm by the biblical witness as opposed to our own feelings. Right? And I'll give some examples in a moment. But within the church and without... Here's what I'm saying is that within the church and without, it is my contention that we are swimming 250 years downstream of Rousseau and this understanding of consequentialism and this understanding that people are inherently good. And so really the only thing keeping us from doing good is external realities. Right. And, that, and that even in the church, we say, well, people aren't good. So. Really, we have to define the external realities by what the Bible wants, and then we still just say, like, so we need to do whatever the Bible would require of us to get to the ethical goods that we want, right? We still think about things in terms of this consequentialist ethical current, and I would just say that that is the air that we have been breathing in the West for at least 250 years, right? So that's, that's where we are. Now, I'm going to open up for questions. What... What made sense about that? Like, what didn't make sense? What do you need me to go over? Yes. Okay, so, like, what about, like, the theory where, like, it's about the intent of the person? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so uh, she asked about what What about... Uh, some people would even define, like, it's about the intent of the person, not not necessarily, like, the end goal. Um, that, that gets back... At, yes, at, at some point, that even gets back to Rousseau's point, right? My internal... My internal desire for stealing the ribbon, right, was that I wanted to give it away. It was an altruistic thing. And because what I really wanted was something good to happen, then it was good. I would still say that that boils down to consequentialism in the sense that uh, I I had good intentions for the consequences, Right. And just because it didn't turn out that way doesn't mean that it was bad. And, and so we actually um, – we go even a step beyond, like, the idea of, like, what actually happens. And we say as long as you planned for something good to happen, then that was – then that's good enough, right? Um, there is some introspection about ourselves, but the, the idea there being that ultimately we think even our intentions are not mixed with tons of selfishness and, and problems – uh, and we assume baseline that, like, we're going to pick good things, that we want to pick good things. Um, so we take that into account, but usually still through, I would argue, a consequentialist framework. Does that make sense? Anybody want to I'm, – I'm also willing to hear pushback, like, no, consequent people don't think about things that way. We, we don't think about things that way in the church. I'm willing, I'm willing to hear it. Um, thoughts? Questions so far? Okay, yeah. I know we covered, that's, that's 250 years of world history in like 20 minutes. Um, so, yeah, you can stop me if, if, if need be. but uh, oh, uh, Yes. Can so you give an example of how Christians use like, some things they typically say? Yes, yes. I'm going to do that uh, here in a second. We're gonna, I'm going to move forward in the outline, and then we're going to hit those. Now, what's the problem with consequentialism? Here's the thing. So I've just defined to you like how it works, right? The consequentialism. You might say, like, what's so what's so wrong with that? Yeah, you said that we're kind of mixed motives, but like if everyone really was just trying to get to the right ends, right? And we also weren't hurting each other, right? We're not, you know, we we're, we're, we're everybody's doing what they really want to do. You know, actually, Nick, uh, I think Rousseau was right. <laughs> You know, I think I think, you know, you're acting, you're like pitching it like this was some sort of problem. But I, I think he progressed into what I hope is the future of the world. Here's here's my argument. Here's what I'm here's what I'm going to put out three things: why this doesn't work, why consequentialism as a sole ethical grid is actually destroying us. Consequentialism provides three things: more outrage than answers, more pain than promise and more gray than guidance. And we're going to talk each of those in turn, provides more outrage than answers, more pain than promise, and more gray than guidance. And I'll pick up some like uh, Christian ways that this happens too, but more outrage than answers. Let's start with that one. Uh, This is what consequentialism provides, more outrage than answers. We see this in uh, whataboutism as the unassailable defense, right? Uh, This is, you know, mostly we're talking, uh, you can see this most clearly in politically, But if, but it's in all choices in life, if you can just make the other option a worse one, right, a worse consequence, then it becomes ethically clear how to live, right? When you look through everything in a consequentialist grid, all you have to do to make one choice good is make the other choice bad, right? That's all it takes. And so that's how, we've, that's how we think about and argue everything. It creates a system in which all we ever do as a society is choose between the lesser of two evils. Right? That's all you do in a consequentialist worldview. Right? So think about this. Um, it, it comes down to false dichotomies like abortion versus the welfare of a mother. Right? You, cannot, you either care about women's rights and their bodies— or, or you care about uh, the unborn, right? And and the, the accusation thrown across both ways is you don't care about babies. Well, you don't care about uh, women. You don't care about them being able to live, you know, happy lives with good careers and be able to make choices about their body. And and here's here's the thing: what if what if you cared about both? What if you cared about both? But the but the thing is' we don 't we don't allow for a worldview where you can care about both because we only look at the consequences, and the only arguments that we can make are based on like the outcomes right as opposed to based on uh, what people are going through in real time right that we can 't take it moment by moment we can 't have any sort of rooted value we 're just looking at consequences, and therefore we say if you don 't believe in this consequence, then you 're against the 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 uh, you're against me. You're either for me or against me, and we don't have any way to define things. Uh, this also happens. It's not just that's like the most low hanging fruit. But y'all remember this past summer, uh, last year, Simone Biles had to take some time out of the Olympics, and she said uh, she's um, you know she said that she had. Um, some issues with being able to locate herself as she was spinning and that she was having a very tough time with her mental health as she was doing the Olympics. Uh, lots of pressure and things and there arose, right, just like there always is in the society, there arose two sides of this argument. One side that says, you know, you made a commitment to the U.S. We put you on the team and you need to just suck it up and do what you were asked to do. Mental toughness is what, is what this world needs. And then there arose like another group. You don't care about mental, uh, mental health. Mental health is physical health. And it's just as healthy for her to care about her brain as it is to care about like a broken leg. Why, doesn't, why don't people understand that it's important to care about what's going on between your ears? And we became, and, it's, and it, they just shouted back and forth at each other. That you have, an, you have a responsibility to do what you signed up to do. Well, you, she has a responsibility to herself to care about like her own well-being. Right, and so we just talked right back uh, across each other because we were we couldn't agree on the consequences of an action. Right, because ultimately we made it into what about? Well, what about actually honoring your commitments? Well, what about actually caring about mental health? Right, happens in other ways too. Uh, George Floyd um, living in Milwaukee, we're pretty close to Minnesota. George Floyd gets uh, murdered in Minneapolis, and in the wake of that, there was all these. Uh, there were riots and stuff. Uh, we also had um, in Kenosha, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, issue happened and uh, people were like burning down buildings. Uh, I live a few blocks away from a, a place that was burned down uh, in Milwaukee. And there arose this thing that was like, we need law and order. We need people to uh, we need to respect like property and to do this the right way, and then there was this. There was a group of people that said, "Don't you understand that a black man is dead, and that there's there's so many like him, and that really what we need is justice right now?" And so they're like, "What's worse, burning down a building or killing a man?" And and it's just, what about the what about these people? These uh you know the people who own these businesses. What about their livelihoods? Well, what about this man's life? What about? And we just do this what until we're. You know blue in the face it's all we it's all we know how to do is to point out the ethical wrong or the the bad consequences of the other side we do not know how to advocate well for our own position because we just point out the problems on the other side because with all these things what if you cared about mental health and mental toughness what if what if what if honoring your obligations and also listening to your mental health are both good things what if it is both good to Believe and to care about and to advocate for racial equality and and equity and also that there should be law and order that you shouldn't just be able to burn down someone's uh, business. Why can't you care about both those things? Why can't you understand that uh, you know people are very upset and yes, maybe they shouldn't do that, but that doesn't mean that their whole uh, issue or stance is wrongheaded. Right? It happens every time. I mean, and honestly, like that's those are the issues. Think about the elections that we have. I, I mean, if you've ever watched a presidential debate, it literally just devolves into don't vote for that person. They're worse than me. <laughs> right. It's it's very it's like hardly ever about like positive issues that anyone's trying to get you to believe that you should vote for them on. It's mostly about the other person is so wrong uh, for this job. Um, yeah, they've even uh, Joe Biden's campaign manager manager has even been quoted as saying like, uh their strategy going into uh, the presidential debates was literally for Joe Biden to get out of the way and just point out, like, you don't want this guy. Like, that was the, that was the campaign strategy uh, in the, from the Biden camp, right? So, like, this, this is how we think about it, right? More outrage than answers. We just get outraged all the time and we have no answers. We just think the other side is worse than the side that we're on. Right? Okay. That's that's one problem with consequentialism, more outrage than the answers. Another problem with consequentialism. More pain than promise. What do I mean by that? Consequentialism this is a funny, consequentialism promises happiness, but delivers pain by diminishing promises. Let me say that again for the people who are taking notes. Consequentialism promises happiness, but delivers pain by diminishing promises. What do I mean by that? If it's simply about a pain-pleasure calculus, here's the question we gotta ask. Why honor promises, right? Things that you thought were good a moment ago, if the pain-pleasure calculus shifts, then you actually have a moral obligation to also shift your promise, right? It, It, consequentialism makes its own promise that you'll be happy if you ditch your promises, right? Uh, and, and what happens in that is actually that what it delivers isn't even happiness, but pain instead. We see this most in how we uh, conceive of our world's uh, most sacred promise, I would argue. That's marriage. Right? Uh, the, uh, you know, most think, right? I'll, I'll say this um, outside maybe uh, Christian norms uh, or even, you know, maybe broadly religious norms, uh, most think that uh, the points of dating right if you're thinking about like or or the point of getting married let's say that if you're going to get married uh, what you need to do is maximize the most amount of pleasure you can have find the right find just the right spouse and if you can just find the right spouse then you'll have lots of pleasure and minimal amounts of pain right find the right person who doesn't inhibit any of the things that you want in life and compliment all of them and add to them, and then doesn't detract to anything that you want, right? That's what it's all about, finding just the right partner who who can couple with you towards the right goals, get you all that you want. They won't ever, they won't uh, block your career. They won't, um, they won't try to change you, make you somebody that you're not. They won't, they won't do anything uh, bad to you and you'll have all this happiness and all this good. They love you for you and you'll, you'll just live happily ever after. Yeah, good luck, yeah I, it's almost obvious why this doesn't work, but, uh, but what that leads to, right, is um, you date for a long time because in order for you to be sure that that can happen, you got to do, a, you got to really test them out, right? And the best test drive that you can do is actually to live together before marriage, Right, that you that you move in together and you and you spend time actually living in the same place, so that way you know for certain that that person is never going to challenge you and never going not challenge. They would say, "I want to be challenged just in the ways that I want to be challenged." Um, have y'all ever seen? Have y'all ever seen The Office? B.J. Novak when he uh, or like Ryan the temp. There's this moment in The Office where he says, um, I, "I want you to lead me." He says to his like superior uh, Michael say He says, "I want you to lead me. I want you to." To challenge me in in the way that I want to be led and when I feel like it right that's what we think about that's that's what we think about uh, marriage here right we're thinking about like I want to be challenged but make sure that it's in ways that help me bring more pleasure into my life and not pain right and so we want to test out that partner and Christians, man, you're like, yeah, that's so dumb. I can't believe they don't do it. No, 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 no. You don't do much better, right? We say, ooh, this person loves Jesus, right? Reads his or her Bible. They're a good leader spiritually. And therefore, this will be a good marriage, Right? Uh, I, we test them out in just different ways. Like the other one is maybe, you know, you might say like, that's super selfish. Like yada, yada. Uh, maybe I even pitched it that way. But like we don't, we do the exact same calculus. We say, okay, here's what I need. I need this person to, you know, be a Bible study leader and I need them to be, you know, it helps if they're good looking and, you know, this thing and this thing. And we look for like who 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 is the hottest and and coolest frat daddiest, like whatever, but also loves Jesus, you know, person that I can get for my station, like bang for my buck. Like that is how we think about dating. And and, and we want to lock that person down because that will give us the most pleasure and the least amount of pain, right? We, We do the exact same thing. We are looking ultimately for our happiness still. We just define happiness by like Christian stuff because we think that's what's going to make us most happy. But what happens, right, guys, what happens when the miscarriage comes a couple years later, right? And that person is not the same person that you married. They aren't reading their Bible like they thought they would. They aren't, they aren't you know, Mr. or Mrs. Encouragement. They don't, they don't work as hard as they used to. They're struggling. Maybe, uh, you know, Mr., you know, uh, on the track to, to be, you know, partner at a law firm. What if he gets laid off and you think, that's not the guy that I married. He's, now he's just sitting on the couch eating potato chips. What are you gonna do then? Right, because if, if, you, if you look at it from this perspective, you look at it from consequentialism, you made a bad choice. The problem, isn't, the problem isn't that you need to be a good spouse, it's that that person is not who you signed up for, and guess what happens? You get divorced. Because, that, because you made a bad decision, right? The only, the only thing you can come back to is, that should not have been the person that I married because what I thought I was going to get is more pain than pleasure, and right now, or sorry, more pleasure than pain, and right now that's not happening, and so this is not the contract I signed up for. Right? We don't have any category for this. Uh, consequentialism says the best thing to do is to dissolve a relationship that isn't bringing you pleasure. It doesn't matter if you promised it, right now you've got to make a calculus about what, it, what consequences you want, and you've got you to follow that to its end. Right. And if that means dissolving any sort of relationship, you got to do it. Right. We have no we have no context for for uh, commitment. Uh, and, and it's not for the record. It's not just in marriage. Right. I, I you know, joke about that. But it's also in friendships. Right. We are the most transient culture that has ever existed. Right. That we that we will leave homes every three or four years for the next job that offers more money. Because here's what we think. You guys are all going to graduate. You're going to go off and take jobs, and that's great. Uh, maybe it'll be where you are going to college, or maybe you know, you'll move back to your home countries or whatever. Um, but what's going to end up happening is you'll get there uh, to wherever you're going, and then you know, give it a year or two or three or whatever, and somebody will call you, you'll hear about a job opportunity, and you'll get a 25% pay, pay bump. And it doesn't matter that... Uh, It doesn't matter that you are committed to the people there. No, did you do it? Did you do a ceremony? Did you do anything like that? No, but there is an implicit commitment and promise in 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 friendship, right? You are not really friends with anybody at all if you can just back out of that friendship at any moment, right? Friendship is the understanding that we are going to walk through life together, and we don't even pause to think about. Most times. Right. We don't even pause to think about what am I giving up by taking this more money? Because what we think is I'll be happier. Right. I'll have a better job. I'll be doing maybe even maybe even it's I'll be doing what I really wanted to do all along. Right. In my job. Right. Well, I'm not doing it for the money, Nick. I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the good for my for like what I want. Like this, is, this is this is the calling God has placed in my life. Um, and never mind the calling that all your friends are placing on your life, but that's not, that neither here nor there. The church might have been calling you into something. Never mind. Uh, here's here's what we say is, man, this is what I really want to do. And so I've got to leave. And it doesn't matter that, like, I have good friendships or that I have a good church or I have any of those things. What I need to do is do the best thing for me. Right. We look at the consequences, we make the decision and it doesn't matter if we diminish our relationships. The point is to be happy. We don't have to we don't have to honor promises or commitments. Um, Yeah, it's there. There are. The point I'm making is that you get more pain than you do promise that we that by not honoring our commitments, by not understanding the commitments that we're making in life and, and by none of them being. All all commitments being temporary, based on a con- like current pain pleasure calculuses, you are ultimately just bringing yourself into pain over and over and over again uh, because it's the only calculus you can make. Um, y'all, do y'all watch the Bachelor or the Bachelor franchise at all? Yeah. No anybody? Okay, uh, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take that as a little bit of encouragement to do this one. Uh, there was. This was, I think, last summer at Bachelor in Paradise. Yes, that's right. I watch even Bachelor in Paradise, Uh, not because it's good TV, but because it's bad TV. Um, And so uh, you hate watch it, right? Okay. There was this girl. The the premise. I don't know if you guys know this about the show, but essentially they put all these hot single people, single people, uh, on a on an island, or you know, a beach or whatever, and they tell them that they have to they have to date each other. And they have to pick people every week and stuff. And um, it's, it's, you know, the, the whole point is just date whoever you want, you know, do whatever you want. And at the end of the week, we're going to give out roses. And you get to stay if somebody likes you back. And you have to leave if nobody likes you. Uh, and there's more, there's more of one gender than the other. So that every week, some people are on the chopping block and they go home. Right? Well, there was this one girl named Demi who was on last season – and literally, she the day, like one day, she is like, uh, trying to convince this other guy to break up with this girl that he'd been dating for like a couple of weeks on the beach. And she says, hey, it's all about like exploring other relationships. Right? No one's really committed to anyone here. That's not really how it works. You, know, you can date whoever you want. And so you should let, – let's go, let's go to the boom-boom room. That's what it's called. Let's go to the boom-boom room, and it, and it won't mean anything. It won't mean anything. It's just us like hanging out. And you know what? He takes her up on. It. He says, like, all right. Yeah, let's like let's see uh, what happens there. And then the, the day after this boom boom incident. Boom, 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 right. He goes back to the original girl and says, like, I've decided that I really want to be with you. Right. And of course, of course. Right. She feels used. And I would argue that she's right to feel used, but not from a consequentialist grid. Because what she was saying was, as long as we all understand the promises that we're making, we are not making any promises here. We're just kind of having an exchange. You can, you can test me out. I can test you out. And you can go back to the other original girl. And the thing is, she says, uh, the, the, there she's decrying this other contestant. Tries to get everybody against him by being this like flip-flopper and stuff. And, she, and like, the funny thing is, the day before she was saying, that's what it was all about. Why doesn't she understand it? I'll tell you why. She doesn't understand that she has made promises in the boom-boom room. That he made promises in the boom-boom room and then had no intention of keeping them. Right? She feels used for a reason because the truth is at the end of the day, what she really wants is for him to be committed to her. And he wasn't. And he showed that to her. Right. It doesn't matter that they were consent, that that there was consent there. It doesn't matter that, that they both agreed to it. It's that they didn't even really understand what promises they were making. And the morning when he woke up, he made a pain pleasure calculus decision that she was not going to give him as much pleasure as the next girl. And he moved on. And she didn't, she didn't anticipate that happening, but that's what happens when we make consequentialism our sole ethical grid. Um, Questions? Do we have questions? Oh, what about, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna pause before we get to grade and guidance. Yes? Is utilitarianism the same thing as consequentialism? Utilitarianism is another name for consequentialism. Yes? Would you say it like, ties into humanism? Because, um, oh, yeah. Because when you're, I guess, like the thing with abortions, I always see a trend of doing this thing, okay? Either, like you said, either you're with me or against me, like nobody can actually be in the middle. And then some people go as far as, like, um, just doing, like, a lot of things, like, not being in contact with family because you don't agree with them, and then just being really radical. So I would think that it ties into extremism. Yes, yes, yes. And on both sides, like, just to be clear, right? Yeah, she, her point was that, that have we gotten actually more extremes? Is this driving the extremism that we see? And I think, I think certainly, because, because, uh, the only argument, like one of the only arguments we can think of for our side um, or one of the main arguments is what about the other side? We it, it only bolsters our position to think lower of the other person. Right. So in this world where we're just going by consequences, yeah, it, it behooves you to actually villainize everybody on the other side. And the I'm more the more wrong you are, actually, the more right I become. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think certainly it's played... Uh, extremism is probably a, a consequence. Yes? This kind of makes it sound like any like, pros and cons list is using this, but is that true? Like, Are there situations where like you can be weighing these options and not viewing it in this way? Yes. Uh, what I would say is... Um, what we're talking about here is using consequentialism as the sole ethical grid, right? So, so when, you, when you boil it all down to that, then yes, if you just made a pro and cons list for, like, murdering somebody, you're like, they're a bad person. That's the only, that's the only pro, the only con is they would, like, I guess I'd have to kill them, but that's not a big deal. And you did, right? Like, it's you're doing, you're doing consequentialism there, right? But, like, that's not... And, like, obviously we understand that the cons of that would be I'm going to get put in jail, all this other things, right? And so we might not make that kind of decision. But usually that's just how we make all our decisions is, like, a pro-cons list without any, thinking about anything else. Um, yeah. And I, and what, I, what I'm going to advocate for, we're going to talk about how do we get out of it tomorrow. What I'm going to advocate for, for is, like, what what belongs on that pro-cons list, so to speak, right? Right. Um, All right, I'm going to do one last uh, gray than guidance. So it gives gray than guidance last of our problems here. What consequential consequentialism gives us is more gray than guidance. Thorough consequentialism fuels moral ambiguity. Consequentialism fuels moral ambiguity. What I mean by ambiguity is like grayness, like uh, it lacks clarity. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, give you, like, a clear right and wrong. It turns morality into an entirely situational proposition, right? Like, what is good, what is, what is the right choice becomes sit- completely and totally situational, right? There is never always a right or wrong. There is simply the outcome. Here's the problem with having uh, situations develop, right? Because think about this. Um, what I mean by that is like uh, I've been joking the whole time about killing someone, but I'm sure some of you guys are like, well, it de- would depend. Like is the guy attacking you or – right? That, again, that's just consequentialism. Like it's, it's, well, it depends on the situation, and given this situation, these would be the consequences, and so you have to do what you have to do, right? Like we, we can't get away – that's what I'm saying is if you've been thinking that, we cannot get away from thinking about things through the lens of consequentialism. It's, it's so thoroughgoing. Pro- the, here's the problem though. Here's the problem. We don't know the future. You don't know the future, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's how we talk about, uh, oh, this is a good example of consequentialism too, that like um, in terms of uh, it being situational, we, we always do the whataboutism and then we say like, well, you know, given this situation and this is going to be the outcome if you do this, right? You have to choose the other thing. We do this with presidential candidates, right? You can't vote for a third party. You're throwing away your vote, and that's as bad as voting for the other side. Interestingly enough, if you talk to a Republican, they'll tell you, that's like voting for a Democrat. You talk to a Democrat, that's like voting for the Republican side. They both think that you're, like, harming them. It can't both be true. But given their situation, right, they are looking at the consequences, and they're saying that's what's going to happen if you make this choice. Truth is, they don't know, right? The truth is that they don't know that. They cannot be certain that that is what's going to happen. You can't be certain. You don't know moment to moment what's going to happen next, right? Uh, The problem is that you you cannot always know the future, or even know that you're going to get your desired outcome, right? As we said earlier, right? Um, Have you guys uh, have you guys ever seen the movie King Richard? It's about the the Williams sisters, Venus and Serena. Got nominated for Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, would rec- I would recommend watching it. Um, there's this scene where uh, it's, it's the dad of Venus and Serena who are the most successful women's tennis players, arguably the most successful like, women's athletes of all time, maybe even the most successful athlete, period, of all time uh, in terms of uh, Serena. But they, um, they're, they're, they're uh, playing tennis and he's getting them ready and they're having to like, practice on this court where this local gang, Is like kind of marking its territory And they're hitting on his daughters Who are much younger than them And he stands up for them And ends up getting just beaten to a pulp They just like crush his skull I mean it's awful And he goes to his car And there's a scene where he's going to get his gun And he literally gets a gun Like purchases it Brings it out And is about to walk into like a local drugstore That they are like they're all hanging out in And he's going to go And he's going to kill these guys And right before he's about to go do it Another car pulls up with like an Uzi, sprays the place, kills everybody inside, and then drives off. Like a rival gang, I guess. Right? Now, the thing is, could, could Williams have known that that was what was going to happen right before he did the shooting? For all he knew, he could have walked in there, shot all the people who had beaten him up, and then walked out, and he would have spent the rest of his life behind bars, and probably Venus and Serena would not have uh, achieved what they achieved, would have, would have killed his family over this retribution right but he can't know the future he can't know what's all going to happen and the thing is eventually those guys got what was coming to them and he didn't need to do what he thought he needed to do the point that I'm making is we have a limited frame right we we assume that we can know all all the consequences and that is just not an accurate way of thinking about the world humans are surprised all the time by the consequences of things right and here's Here's how we see this this grade and guidance, where we, uh, because we don't actually know the future, because we can't uh, know for certain, and we it fuels moral ambiguity, uh, like we see this played out in our lives with this, like the moving goalposts in the pandemic. Y'all remember like for the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, it was about flattening the curve, and then it was like herd immunity, and then it was like, well, we're gonna be living with it, and then we're gonna, like we, we kept changing like what we were trying to do because we couldn't figure out what consequence we all could agree on that we really wanted. Some people were happy just to flatten the curve. Other people wanted us to get to zero other people. And, and we couldn't agree on an end. And so we couldn't figure out what we were going to do in the meantime. Right. Um, this is also, we see this played out in our current climate with this. Have y'all seen the morning show? Uh, I do lots of uh t v and movie references sorry uh if you're not into that but like there's this there's this show called the morning show it's on apple plus can't recommend it um but it is it is good about this um you might want to watch it i don't know i'm not gonna i'm neither here nor there uh the it what it outlines is the shifting nature of consent right we we say that all all that matters is is consent right that two people agree to do a thing but what What happens in that show is um, Max Kellerman, who is like an anchor on this morning show, uh, he ends up um, having sex with someone who is in a lower position than him in the company. She feels like she can't say no to him or else she'll risk like not being able to move up in the company. And so she willingly and even enthusiastically consents uh, to this relationship and only to find out later that she didn't really want to do it and that he didn't that he didn't know right now who's in the fault there right our, our culture is starting to understand well you know if you're in a position of power you need to recognize that and actually consent isn't all you need and we're starting to recognize these things but we did we weren't even thinking about this like 20 30 years ago and why because we did we didn't know the outcomes Right, we didn't. We didn't know that that's how people were going to feel, right? Or, or we silenced those people into not being able to talk about how they felt. Right. Uh, I will also say, like, you know, this moral ambiguity. We can't. Like, consent isn't even enough. So we got to figure out how to how to do, you know, this. Like, it, it should be enthusiastic consent, but then it also has to be between two equal parties. And so we're adding all these caveats, right, into what we think because we're trying to catch up to this moral ambiguity. I'll also say this. The rise of the anti-hero. Like somebody who doesn't do any of the right things, but we're supposed to root for them because they're like us. Because there there's just moral ambiguity. Ozark, Batman, Breaking Bad, Mad Men. Like these shows are all fueled by the idea that there is no ethical good, only situations and you just have to do what's the best thing in every given situation, right? Ozark is literally, I, if y'all haven't seen, the, seen it, but uh, it's essentially a guy who starts off by just trying to make enough money for his family by... Um, signing up with a drug cartel to like launder money. He's not going to kill anybody. He's not going to do anything for them. But he's just going to push pencils. That's all he's doing, right? Moving some zeros around. And it ends up with him like having to shoot people in the head because they were going to kill his wife. And it's like, given the situation, he had to do what he had to do. But what the problem is that you're backing, like the problem is that what you've done to get to that situation is you've made a whole bunch of other choices that you haven't acknowledged, right? And the truth is that it, there is no winning in that situation and also that doesn't make it a good ethical choice, right? You actually made a mistake several other choices ago and that now we're, we're all rooting for you because that's what our, our culture does we're fine to put aside who you actually are as a person, just to look at the situation and go, well that's the best thing you can do you know, so situationalism uh, consequentialism provides more gray than guidance alright, we got two minutes for questions two minutes for questions are there any? Yes. This is kind of taking your thing of you don't know the future backwards. Yes. But I've been thinking about how in life we look back and say, if only I had done this, right. this would have happened. But you don't know that yes. if you had done that, this would have happened. Yeah, you still don't even know. All the time, even in reverse. Yes, yes. So, which means that, yeah. Like some of that could be even um, the moral ambiguity of even like trying to learn from your past mistakes. The truth is that can't even give you total clarity on what you should have done in a given situation. Because you still don't know how it would have turned out that way, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think it depends um, in, like, sometimes the the pleasure involved leads you into places where then you have to start making consequences or uh, decisions based on fear. Like, I don't want this to happen. I'm afraid of this pain, Um, right? Like, to give the Ozark example for a second, the guy signs up with a cartel because he thinks he's going to make a ton of money. And then he starts making a lot of decisions based on fear of being caught or being killed. And that leads him down some roads he doesn't want to go, right? All yeah, I think there's I think there's tons of I, I think that that's a good point that there's a flip side to all these things yeah Breaking, breaking Bad all over again Breaking Bad same same deal All right, uh, let me pray for us. Uh,